Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. For today's show, we have an absolute veteran of the EV industry, um, uh, particularly early in electric commercial vehicles, which is obviously something that's a, a massive topic now. And uh, the really special thing about this fella is uh, he's a fellow northerner and not just a northerner. He's also from my hometown of Blythe, which um, has been in the headlines a lot recently because of the the announcements to do with battery manufacturing up here. It's also where Avid is based. Um, But it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show Doug McAndrew. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, Ryan, for giving me the opportunity to to have a chat with you about... uh... Uh, EVs and their applications, um, and just some history as well. Yeah, well, so if we can get kind of stuck into it, obviously you you grew up in uh, in Blythe in Northumberland, so maybe just a bit of an insight into your kind of earlier days and and how you went from that into into automotive engineering. Yeah, so growing up in Blythe, it's not the immediately obvious industry that you would have expected um, someone to to actually jump into. Um, And after thinking of several areas that um, I was interested in, I actually drawing cars and being involved in uh, seeing how people move around was such an intriguing uh, challenge that I decided engineering was what I wanted to do. Long long story short, through Teesside, um, uh, going through a design um, training into and then moving to Coventry where I finalized my engineering degree that sort of brought me um, quite nicely to um, the the Jaguar Land Rover um, experience as it was okay yeah it was actually Rover Group at the time and Jaguar was just down the road but there was always been uh, very clear links to it and uh, so I, I, I decided that Car design and car engineering was something that I wanted to do. So, right. you know, that that's the transition from really um, an idea um, in the Northeast all the way through to delivering some pretty um, um, amazing products through my, my career up till now. And that was, um, if you don't mind me saying, that was quite a long time ago in the nicest possible way <laughs> no no it's too many years almost 30 so you know that's the sort of the numbers are going going from 20s to 30s that's scary so you went through um through that uh, bmw then to yep. uh, then to mclaren um uh, so quite early obviously not not into electrification at this point uh, so quite almost the opposite end of the scale at mclaren with some of the the products that you were working on there um what what kind of things were you doing yeah, so um, I, I joined a very, very small team in McLaren Automotive at the time um, under some extremely um, um, uh, influential engineers in Barry and Gordon and Frank who um, uh, needed to actually bring a team together to deliver what was called SLR um, for Mercedes. And it was at that period of time, um, Mercedes were looking for a partner to actually develop their supercar technologies. And I uh, was lucky enough to 
to be able to join the team, uh, one of six to actually create the engineering structure that's in most instances from a design perspective or an engineering perspective still exists today, yeah. albeit that it's a, it's a much larger scale. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, just to sort of put uh, put sort of full names to those, Barry, Gordon and Frank, not uh, people, well, people that would be uh, quite well recognized with a full. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, Barry Lett obviously was the head of engineering yeah. and design. Gordon Murray was the figurehead and the inspiration. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they they they're sort of um, two of the, the the inspirations for me when it comes to actual product design and then product development. Frank Kopuk, who's a, a very uh, influential Formula One uh, designer um, from some time in the past and has been able to to bring through an awful lot of development technologies and development methodologies into mainstream operations. So um, some pretty, uh, pretty amazing people I got to work with in, uh, in, 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 in McLaren. Must have been a, a fantastic experience. So after um, what you were at McLaren sort of eight or nine years, you then yeah. uh, came home. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I moved back to the northeast. I saw an opportunity, and I was looking for a um, maybe a more um, sustainable future um, when it comes to just technology in general. I think after after the awe-inspiring experience of working on such a performance-driven product, um, you get to realize what the art of the possible is, and you expand your horizons. I think accordingly. Um, at that point, electrification was just a an idea. Yeah. A, com- a company called Modec was um, doing some amazing things to demonstrate the uh, the availability of electrification in commercial vehicles. Yeah, and and Smith wanted to do the same thing and um, saw an opportunity to do it as a um, uh, a larger scale, more recognizable. Um, use of current technologies at that time to do it. So, um, yeah. yeah, I moved back to the Northeast to do some, uh, what would be uh, quite a, an expansive range of commercial vehicles in the end. Yeah. And that, so so people might not actually recognize the name now because it, it is Smith's, um, were around and then kind of went, but Smith, Smith's history goes back a really, really long time. Um, essentially, you know, Smiths were making um, electric delivery vehicles for delivering tea and milk and things back in the, I don't know, 1960s. Um, yeah. The business Sevcon, which is now part of uh, Borg Warner, span off it. it Smith's, Sevcon was Smith's electric vehicles control systems. But then um, in the kind of 2005, six, uh, the Smith's electric vehicles business was bought out by uh, Tamfield Group. And um, they, they essentially came up with this um, the strategy to move from the kind of low performance milk floats and air, airport tugs and that kind of thing into on highway, like high performance electric delivery trucks, electric delivery vans and um, massive, you know, at the time, this was revolutionary thinking, really, because uh, we were still... You know, this was early days of Avid, and uh, you know, I remember regularly having people kind of tease us about milk floats, which in a, in other countries people don't know what milk floats are, but it's a very they, English yeah. thing. <laughs> uh, very very slow electric vehicles that used to drive around delivering milk at four o'clock in the morning, um, and uh, you know, it was, it was completely actually visionary um, 
visionary idea at, at Smith's that you could take the, the those principles and apply them to full scale uh, commercial vehicles and and deliver a product. So, do you want to just you know where where I mean where do you even start with this with the Smith's journey? Do you want to tell us about that? Well, I was inspired by the leap that could be created by just taking a focus and delivering against a, an objective. Hmm. Um, there wasn't any excuses. That was All we did was electrification of commercial vehicles, and we weren't trying to solve everybody's challenges um, for every single application. We just recognized that last-mile applications could be very much uh, delivered with a zero emission at point of use by by electrification and the technologies existed, the energy densities existed at the time, the electric machines existed at the time. They just weren't being applied because everybody was focused on cars, yep. individual people transportation, which in essence extremely important and has taken a while to mature and is now becoming um, the mainstream transport application. But in parallel to that, commercial track commercial applications. Um, were consuming and still do consume a huge amount of carbon. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, they actually do put a lot of burden on all of the infrastructure systems that um, uh, need to be resolved as well. And so focusing on that, we delivered um, our initial demonstrator to a very visionary business in TNT who, who recognized that they needed to do something different yeah. to, to survive and be able to um, deliver their products and to do their services in an economical way. Um, and that it progressed from there. Uh, in the end, building over a thousand electric trucks in initially UK, but then ultim ultimately also moving to manufacturing trucks in the US, yes, yeah. where um, FedEx, UPS, um, we're all looking at doing the same journey at a stage behind where TNT were, yeah. um, all the way through to making trucks and vans and um, buses, small buses for uh, pu public transportation across the world, Hong Kong, um, across Europe. Um, I think we, we, we demonstrated the capability of the function very well. Um, and that has been the trigger for others to come in. And I, I, I look carefully at the technologies and the products that are being offered to the marketplace today and whether or not it's a, mm. uh, a Mitsubishi Fuso truck that's now the first electric truck ever to be existed because there's, <laughs> apparently there's been quite a few of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they're, they're all doing um, an industrialized level of what was being uh, developed and um invented let's say um in number of businesses across the uk at the time and this was um so so effectively the the two products that emerged at smith's were the uh what was it the edison and yeah we did edison and newton really newton. Um, that was it yeah. <laughs> so the edison and the newton were the two products that emerged out of it and these were you taken kind of um so you basically decided that you weren't going to develop the chassis and and all of that stuff from scratch. You were going to do a conversion. Um, yep. So you're working with the the Ford Transit and um, what was the, the larger truck? That was the base vehicle from someone else, wasn't it? Yeah, strange enough, the um, the the large truck was from a company called Avia in the Czech Republic. Right. Um, which surprisingly enough, I'm not that far away from today. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> and the, I mean, particularly the truck the 
the, so the transit conversion because it's I think the latest announcement for a, a reverse merger US listing SPAC thingy me Bobby uh, which yeah. there's a lot of at the moment is uh, a company uh, it was Lightning Systems and they're basically doing electric conversions of transit vans and uh, I saw some of the press and pictures of of the build process and honestly it could have been a picture from you know 12 years ago at the uh, yeah. <laughs> smith plant so yeah, sort of, the vigo center yeah yeah, yeah being uh, you know the i mean you you guys really were true trailblazers in that sense um but it must that must have made it really hard to do to do what you were doing you know what were the what were the kind of challenges well, sometimes they say that to be first is to be uh, it, it's, it's not best to be first. It's sometimes best to be second. Mm. Um, clearly, um, the the vision or the philosophy behind what we were trying to achieve was inspirational, and and and, and it did deliver against a lot of the objectives that we we set out. Um, it's the other things that you need to solve to actually get you to that date and to get you to that demonstration that obviously we solved. Uh, through muscle power, brain power, just general sweat, yeah. um, which others have learned from. You know, yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't have said the biggest challenge was going to um, be availability of connections and fuses. Right. You know, now that sounds like a stupid thing, but in reality, we, you know, everybody was focused on batteries and electric mo- motors and things like that, and you can, yeah. you know, magnetic developments were all being imagined as to get in, uh, increases in uh, energy density at the, the electric machine level. Batteries were being forced in terms of their development, and, and it's still happening today, yeah. um, to actually improve their chemistry. Yeah. The actual integration and the, the challenges associated with making it safe and serviceable and sustainable and costly and cost-effective yeah those obviously were the things that you have to layer on top of any of these innovations and they they did take some time to actually resolve um and that's where first mover status sometimes isn't really helpful second mover status can come in sweep up all of the good bits not forget all of the 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 challenges and not have to to learn the lessons that um are learned by others because you of course you would have to spend at that point and I, i can remember just about how these were done, but even sim- things that would be simple today, like how am I going to plug into a, a high high power charger? Today you go and buy your CCS connector. Yeah. It's an accepted yep. standard. There's a number of suppliers, but back then they didn't exist. And you guys were having to come up with, a, well, how do we have like a reliable, safe, waterproof way of plugging into a high power charger? Yeah. That, that, just the, the Menekes connectors were obviously, they, they didn't really exist at all the sealed drive over connectors yeah. that now exist um so we will you know you could have a look the big blue connector big big red connectors that are industrial connections we had to use those to start with yeah um, because that was all that was available in the current rating that we had um so it, you know it, it was uh it was definitely something that opened my eyes to again the, just what was possible with just effort and and how you could you could take on a task without having the book yeah um then you know that the book can probably now be written on how to do an electric vehicle yeah. but yeah. when you and i set out there, there was no book there was literally lots of people going oh that's gonna take 25 years that'll never happen yeah. we'll just carry on with emissions control and improving emissions in the end now i think we could write the book so getting 
solving all these challenges, getting reliability to the right place for the commercial fleets, particularly because that's I mean, yeah. that is a bigger challenge with a with compared to a passenger vehicle where you might have you know design life of a, a couple of thousand hours. A commercial vehicle is a much more difficult application where you've got to do thousands of hours a year, let alone across the whole life of the product. So getting all those reliability things and getting the vehicles running right, that kind of, um, those challenges were, were quite significant in the end, weren't they? Yeah, I think uh, sustainability and reliability comes from a number of places. It doesn't necessarily simply come from somebody checking it's okay when it goes out the factory, yeah. factory door. Um, and the supply chain had to grow immensely yeah. um, to actually be able to deliver the likes of perform the performance and the reliability of those products yeah. that um, could deliver ultimately in on the customer satisfaction. And any one of those elements, um, if it wasn't reliable or if it didn't meet the objectives or it had some level of sensitivity, certain environmental conditions or whatever else, yeah. it caused the customer dissatisfaction that. While in the 80s and the 70s, it might have been accepted because vehicle reliability was of the similar level. Yeah. By the time we were introducing vehicles into the marketplace, um, you know, you don't think about whether your car is going to start when you go out on a frosty yeah. morning or not now. It's just, it always will. And it, you don't even have to worry about it. Yeah. Um, um, and, and that sort of, that step down in terms of reliability and availability um, at a commercial level, was unsustainable um, yeah. and 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 that's the biggest challenge i think it's not about whether or not it's a hundred or 120 kilowatt hours of battery available on the vehicle yeah it's actually about can i use what i've got can i always turn it on can i always do the job that i need to do with it yeah. can i forget about it in terms of its maintenance because it's already yeah. matured and it has that reliability and, and a, i mean a, a big part of the way that you get that reliability is through you know, obviously engineering time and testing and validation work. And uh, I guess it must be, you must sort of raise an eyebrow when you see other commercial vehicle people coming to market and they maybe don't have a enough budget to do that sort of thing. Or on the other side, do you feel a pang of uh, almost regret when you know people like Rivian are out there and they're raising billions, so three billion or ever now. I mean, that's yeah. effectively you need significant investment to get that reliability and the supply chain and all stuff into the product and it's not you know 10 million or 50 million it's like a billion <laughs> dollars uh, well when you do when you're designing a complete vehicle from scratch it is a billion dollar business you know yeah. it probably was a billion dollar business in the 90s even even no, no matter now mm. um yes there there is a there's a realization that um you don't get anything for free yeah that, that um, you can wait, and if you wait for the next, you know, for another five, ten years, then all of the individual jigsaw pieces will be available, and it may not be as complicated um, to do. Yeah. Um, and and maybe that is now the case. You know, if you look at just um, manual service disconnects, yeah. high voltage connections, the mechanisms by which high voltage connections are sealed to actual enclosures. Yeah. That's all been solved. It's not not as big a deal, you know. I, uh, the number of hours that you know um, the team put effort into, I know he, uh, at Avid, but also at Smith, to make sure that we had 
zero water paths into the actual enclosures yeah. so we had a an isolation value that actually was stable and didn't produce false negatives yeah you know those things they take they take the time yeah they, they, they take the time to develop yeah with well, that sort of hours and hours burnt on things like ground fault detection and stuff which now you just buy a standard module for it and yeah, uh, yeah. you know we were developing code from scratch for that sort of stuff way back before and, and kind of learning the hard way um yeah so so the smiths i mean you know you guys did some amazing work there and and like um you said that the sort of what was Smith still continues today in, in a number of other businesses, actually, in terms of the what was learned and, and things that have progressed on there. But some people might think after going through eight or nine years, very, very tough, challenging, um, you know, that you would go for an easy job next. Um, and, you know, my and I say, you know, with the biggest respect that we I had always said to my kind of board that I didn't want to be the crazy guy that had been rattling on about electric cars to then then be the crazy guy that started talking about flying cars. Um, you kind of jumped both feet into uh, an electric flying car business, uh, which, you know, I can't I can't even begin to imagine the challenge, um, uh, the challenges involved. And, and again, not not now you know this is a number of years ago um when everything was difficult and and harder to do so aeromobile uh tell us tell us more about that and what the what what that business was doing well it would have been uh, i think it would have been very easy for me to take a pause and choose to do something um aligned with what i already had done before yeah um and and I, and at the time it was I, I had to consider it very carefully. But when you come down to it, if you were offered the opportunity to do something so amazingly radical, yeah, and to really challenge the preconceptions of public, uh, the, the public in general, legislators in general, governments in general, mm. um, I decided that I really would wanted to try and take on that those challenges, not simply to develop the product, but also to demonstrate that the future is different. It can, it does not necessarily need to follow yeah. a, a set out path that comes from geopolitical messages or um, big industries uh, restrictions to what the art of the possible is. You know, mm. you can do some amazing things, and if if anything. You know, I, I don't suggest that um, with Aeromobile we're equivalent, but, you know, Tesla and SpaceX, it's shown that taking on an opportunity, not being too scared about the actual challenge, yeah. working through the challenge in a structured way can do some amazing things. I've, uh, I'm in awe of SpaceX every time I see mm. not only a vehicle take off, but also a booster land. Yeah. Um, if you've seen the videos of SN8 in operation, Mm. Um, uh, for a brand new vehicle of a, with a completely different system to, yeah. um, in terms of control, to do all of what it did in its first main flight um, was phenomenal. And it's because people take on those challenges. And I found Aeromobile was something that actually was something I could really see if we could get it to work, get it to demonstration, um, would make people stop and think yeah. about 
efficient use of space and efficient use of time. Um, you know, with too many times I've sat on the motorway on the M1 <laughs> yeah. and think and thought, look, I've only got to go to the get get, get to the M6, and yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, just locally, that's the sort of an example. But you know, if you drive around LA, if you look at various other um, congested zones, the congestion is because of the you know just the volume of traffic it's not the journeys themselves yeah um and we felt that uh aeromobile could offer a different view and you know we were probably second in yeah <laughs> not not first this time terra future would have probably been yeah. um first to actually demonstrate that this mobility or this this uh, modality could be implemented into a product yeah um but um, I move on, it, and let's say, nine years um, from the first ideas of Aeromobile and, and Terrafugia. Yeah. Um, I was involved of, with them for, for five years, and we did a huge amount. And in, those, in that period of time, where you will now see mobility being talked about with Airbus, with Boeing, with yeah. um, Porsche presenting their... Um, uh, their ideas about changing from two to three D from the Lilium jet—they're yeah. all technologies and ideas that have, on the back of the base idea, challenged themselves and realized that they can do something different. And yeah. um, we we did a, a huge amount, I think, in actually progressing that market, that opportunity. Um, and you know, Aerobill is still uh, uh, pushing forward with. Uh, the conclusion of of our initial um, technology roadmap yeah. and the implementation and introduction of vertical takeoff and landing, electrification, complete electrification of the systems on the vehicles, yeah. um, increases to, increasing to um, commercial applications. I'm sure will come with a number of these types of solutions because the technologies involved will be very valuable when it comes to actually providing a service yeah. so it, it's a it's a great it was a great experience to actually develop those products and that develop that team it was a really interesting experience to pull together the flexibility of um and the openness of an automotive set of engineering staff with the complete analytical capabilities of an aviation staff right and to get get them working together in a different way yeah. And from both sides of that equation, the, you could argue that they would—they didn't want to work in a different way, yeah. um, but they had to work in a different way. So bringing that together, I think, produced some uh, really interesting experiences. And um, while the product is, you know, one thing that you have to focus on, I—I've taken from all of my career um, a huge amount of value in the people and the skills and the knowledge that have come out of the challenges that we've taken, whether it be Land Rover whether it be McLaren, um, I see thing, amazing things being done by yeah. people that I've had the on, honor of working with um, yeah. across my career, and, and they're doing things that I could have, couldn't have imagined. So uh, it's, you, know, you, you take an awful lot of value from those things when you're looking back. It really is. I mean, the, the, the Aeromobile is kind of the stuff of dreams, isn't it? You know, it's personal, yeah. personal aircraft, um, the that that sort of uh, ability to um you know replace on-road passenger vehicles with um 
Air, airborne, three like you say, three-dimensional thinking in terms of how we move people around and connect up. But um, it really, it's it's sort of it's something that's been a dream for a, a long time for a lot of people. But to for for you to be such a key part of um, bringing, you know, what what is um, looking like, you know, very credible product um, into the market. I mean, that's a that's just such a massive challenge. To I, I think. A lot of engineers couldn't even get their heads around where to start that, let alone, um, you know, be actually working yeah. through all of the challenges there. So, what, you know, I, I, I do wonder where, where do you think that market is going to go? So, for um, sort of personal um, aircraft, do you think that's a space that's going to take off? Uh, boom, boom, in, boom, boom, indeed. In the near future, <laughs> or. Um, it it does because I, I I've I've had this conversation a couple of times with people where I say right, you know I went from here to there and the reason I didn't fly a helicopter was because a I'm not rich enough to own a helicopter and b I'm not um, skilled enough to fly a helicopter, but there's there's a lot of things that are happening now with um, but if yeah. I could you know if I had either the money or the skill there's a chance that I might have flown a helicopter because it's faster but uh, it's and, you know better better way of getting around. Um, but everything that's happening with autonomous systems and and kind of uh, controls, you know, that's kind of taking away a lot of the skill requirement needed to fly something. You know, if it if it kind of can fly itself pretty much, then I don't need the skills to do it anymore. And if I can get the reason, one of the main reasons helicopters are so expensive is because they're, you know, they make a hundred a year, and that's a lot of helicopters. So they're very 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 low volume product. Um, if we can get kind of volume like automotive volume into that industry. There should be some huge economies of scale start to play yeah. through. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see where the market will will take it and how the desire becomes the reality. Um, things that have been disablers to this type of mobility in the past cost, as you've identified, you know, to buy a helicopter costs an absolute fortune, not just in individual purchase costs, but in terms of operating costs as well. Um, The complexity of the mechanical systems associated with a helicopter are so vast that um, and I I look at them and go, just the collective. I'm just looking (laughs) at the collective going, I can just about figure out how that's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you've got to put that into the perspective of a maintenance engineer and a design engineer to actually make it um, fit for purpose and continued operating um, as it as it should. Yeah. So the, the complexity of the machines that were li- delivering that me- mechanical uh, type of type of transport uh, transportation was in, an inhibitor and a, a very yeah. significant inhibitor because it translated into cost. Yeah. When you when you look at the enablers of how these technologies and how this market is going to develop, electrification is a fundamental enabler. Oh, yeah. Why? Because it actually is reducing the complexity of the systems substantially. I know it sounds like, oh, well, it's a battery, so oh, how do you make the battery work? And, 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 and surely it's easier just to use petrol or kerosene yeah. and, and, and have an internal combustion engine. If you look at the complexity of the control systems for that engine that's actually turning the rotor, it, it needs a one-to-one maintenance sometimes. Yeah. It needs for every hour of operation, you probably need to have the vehicle um, operating in terms of its, its, its service sector so once, so every ten hours, you take it out for a day, and you have to then have to maintain it. Maintain it. Electric machines fundamentally have so few moving parts. Yeah. 
so that you can focus in on those things that actually are at risk. Yeah. Uh, temperature and bearing stability and, and bearing um, temperatures. Mm. You know, it, it becomes a more manageable element. So electrification is most definitely an, enab an enabler to imagining this. Um, autonomy, you know, I, 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 I'm... I'm interestingly monitoring the automotive autonomy journey um, and to imagine how that is going to come into volumized um, products. And then they're doing a substantively um, uh, good job in actually getting the levels of autonomy for certain applications. Yeah. Auto autonomy in flight, it's not as big okay. a deal as autonomy on the road. Right, okay. Proximities relationship to the, the terrain, they're more understood and the separation and segregation are much greater. Ah, 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 okay, sorry. So, so uh, I thought you meant uh, we can have uh, sort of personal aircraft without autonomy, but actually what you mean is it's, it's sort of easier to implement autonomy in aircraft than it is on the road. Yeah. Ah, okay, right. And, and, and if you look at it, if you've been in an aircraft in the last 10 years, you will have flown autonomously for a reasonably substantive period of that time, unless the pilot was doing their hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, they, uh, on certain journeys, there was a journey from Heathrow to JFK where the pilot was in control of the aircraft for 15, I think, no, not even that. I think it was something like um, 10 minutes at, the, at takeoff. They took yeah. off manually and then... The rest of it, flying and also landing, was done with an autonomous system because of the nature of the weather at the destination event. Yeah. So autonomy is something that flying has been developing for some time. As distances get closer, yeah. such, so the autonomous operation needs to be more complex, more, and it has to be, um, it can't be um, a service provided to it right yeah. the vehicle, vehicle has to be autonomous it can't be the systems autonomous yeah. so there's there's, a, there's there's work to be done there but i think they are doing that extremely well and if you just imagine the the swarms of drones that have been demonstrated in in operation in uh various locations but yeah. notably in china you know a firework display using drones instead of yeah. fireworks is like it's 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 done it's you know there is an ability to actually uh, coordinate some very complex multiple multi-body uh, systems yeah. um in such a way so autonomy actually brings that volumization because you're right training and and pilot confidence is something that um is built over time yeah. and i've had the chance to fly um, and, and and that natural concern about when you get into an aircraft for the first time, yeah, um, that that is going to be an inhibitor. And autonomous operation and simplification of controls and systems will make a difference, and that will lead to the likes of the well, likes of Lilium um, of being able to operate without the complexity of the training um, for a multi-engined aircraft. You yeah, know, and do you think? Do you see it getting to that point where the the product, you know, you'll you'll be able to own a Lilium um, vehicle or an Aeromobile or um, one of the others, and it you you basically you won't have to be a qualified pilot. The the sort of systems on the vehicle will be certified to the point where the vehicle is the qualified pilot, and you're effectively a passenger when it's in the air. At that point, do you th do you see that that's where it's 
going to or do you think there'll always be an element of kind of training needed to, to own a, a personal aircraft technology can provide that final stage but hmm. society and psychology will preclude it from being the entry point into application right, okay. i think you know the pilotless operation is going to be unlikely in um in operation just because of the safety case they'll there's a natural tendency to have a pilot in control Mm. um, rather than the vehicle in control yeah um, because of the uncertainty principle of operating Uh um, and and the pilot may not have the same level of complex control that you would get with a uh, a stick and and pedals um, uh, in an aircraft as it is today but they will have the ability to interact with the vehicle and say, I need to do this, or we need to take that action. Yeah. Um, and so the pilotless operation is a, is a further step. Yeah. Um, but single piloted vehicle in operation, vehicle in control operations for the majority of their, for the time, I think is the first entry into market that we'll see. Um, and there are a number of vehicles that are able to do that now yeah. and, and, and are in experimental demonstration phases at this point in time. And even, um, is it Dubai, where they've got um, an experimental um, drone taxi? Is it called E-Hang? E-Hang, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that is, because actually the interesting thing about that is, um, when, you, when you look at it, you think it was pilotless, but actually, if I understand correctly, it's sort of, it's, uh, it's, it's autonomous most of the time, but there's basically a supervisor sitting at a desk somewhere, with flight controls, should they need to intervene and kind of um, step in and, and, and kind of take over the, the control? So it's sort of remotely operated um, back pilot backup for it. But what, what, yeah. what do you think of, of something like that? Would you go in it? Um, I will struggle to get into an EHAN. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, unfortunately, with the... Is that because of your ne- height or because of the, uh, the, the sort of technical? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I think engineers are, um, are difficult to convince of absolutely all of the capabilities uh, yeah. of a product, in my opinion. So I'll be, I'm, I, I need a lot of convincing. And when I look at the aerodynamics of EHAN and the fundamental principles of lift... Mm. Um, the questions start to <laughs> to pop into my mind. I'm perfectly happy to get into a vehicle that has been designed around the latest generation of VTOL. Yeah. Um, where you see jobby aviation type vehicles that yeah. have that. Um, I I can explain to my analytical mind <laughs> that that can fly. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jobby, uh, Jobby, the guys that just are they the guys that have just bought the Uber um, air business? Is that so? Uber have invested in a number of um, um, approaches to try and get Uber Air into operation. So, yeah. this Uber specification has been used to actually trigger a number of um, types of vehicles. Yeah, um, majority of them are going towards the um, lift and cruise type, where you've got vertical lift machines and you've got a thrust mechanism to actually, and a wing of some sorts to actually yeah. create lift during horizontal flight more than anything associated with efficiency. Yes. Um, If you've just got rotating lift machines, then they have to run constant at the speed that you're flying at to maintain the height that you're at. 
Yeah. You know, they, you turn the motors down, you're going down. You turn the motors <laughs> up, you're going up. Yeah. Um, and when you come to a, um, a horizontal operation, that's very inefficient. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we were qualifying in, in Aerobeel and did a, a great job of comparing is all the different configurations, which ones are the most effective at which application. Yeah. And there is not one perfect answer. Right. Um, whether or not you're doing a 10-minute hop or a two-hour hop or are you doing it in different conditions, there are different solutions. So you will see a number of different types of configurations exist for yeah. some time to come. Um, and those are, are backed by big brands and big names. You know, Airbus are showing their, their next generation of VTOL, um, yeah. which you, you would expect them to actually have a really good answer to because they are, coming back to your original point, worried about helicopters becoming redundant yeah, 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 yeah. when these things come along. Yeah, that's their... Um, they have a burning platform to sort of do the uh, sort of business speak of yeah. uh, actually if if someone comes up with a... I mean, it doesn't even need to be all that high volume, you know, 20,000 units a year, let's say, of these personal aircraft. That would absolutely annihilate the, uh, the helicopter market, which is based on kind of hundreds of units a year and like you said earlier, these immensely complex systems, flight controls, all the kind of mechanisms and mechanics that make a helicopter work and, and hang in the air are, are just so expensive and so complex that then to go to um, some wing-mounted electric motors that you can make to, you know, mm. pretty much anything you want um, with some electronic control and uh, you can yeah. rotate them. Look. Any, any which way in sort of five axes, you know. And you can switch them off or you can lose yep. them. There are, the level of redundancy available is, you know, if, if an, uh, uh, most helicopters in commercial operations have two engines. In fact, all of them have two engines. Most helicopters have two engines, both privately used can use a single engine. Yep. That, that does mean that there is no redundancy uh, in certain instances and you end up having, with a, having an auto-rotate to the ground if there is a fundamental issue. Mm. Two engines potentially allow you to actually maintain safe flight. Eight engines, you can switch one off mm. and you can still compensate with a control system. Yeah. And that's the, the redundancy level, that a safety factor level yeah. um, that, that comes with these new technologies allows for... Um, much better um, levels of failure effects analysis to be implemented onto the product. Yeah, that's a really exciting, um, really exciting potential there. And and actually, uh, I mean, we talked about Aeromobile quite a lot there, but but you're and this this is I mean this I find this this is really quite interesting. Um, so you, you're now you've actually moved on and you're you're in a different role, and and particularly given the announcements. Um, uh, about Blythe recently and the the battery giga giga plant uh, being built on the old power station site, which you kind of you look yeah. grown up staring at Blythe power station and um, as much as I did. Um, but you are actually for for a year or so now. You've been working for um, another battery um, another battery manufacturer based in in mainland Europe, building a building a giga factory. So. So yeah. if, uh, at least two gigafactories where Blythe's quite significant. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a small world uh, yeah. I'd say when it comes to certain things happening. And uh, yeah, I've been, uh, um, I, I, I guess I sort of look at um, the technologies I've been involved in and flying cars are done in, in my mind. I know that fundamentally they're not. Yeah, yeah. But, 
you know, you go through the it's what it can't happen. It's not, <laughs> not not quite easy, but it's, it's it feels like there is a roadmap and there's a path to success and there's a path to capability um, yeah. of of performance. And um, we have un- ultimately got to resolve some of the things that actually will prevent these things from being able to be delivered. And energy uh, storage, manufacturing availability of capacity. You know, that's a very simple way of putting why the gigafactories are sprouting up. You know, there is a massive under under provision of volume of cells in the European market. And when the acceleration to transfer to uh, 2032 EVs primarily, um, there is a massive hole. It can't be done without something different happening. And that something different needs to be um, a, uh, a European landscape for manufacturing. Uh, and uh, I say European, I still consider that to be a European, including the the UK as a yep. geographical area, um, to make available product that actually can facilitize the sustained growth, or even just the, the sustaining of the top employer um, of the European Union and the UK when it comes to overall product yeah. and their supply chain. You know, automotive and transportation, it has to be sustained. We have to make sure that it is yeah. not diluted or potentially constrained by global supply factors. Well, it, the, the, the sort of interesting thing, I mean, we've just talked about your your experience there. You've gone from automotive, you know, commercial commercial vehicles, personal aircraft then outside of um that you've got you know electrification in the marine sector you've got more advanced robotics like warehouse robotics factory robots um all which are require batteries you've got you know i was reading a huge article the other day about the advancements in um robotic lawnmowers you know, and that's a huge field. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's it's a mobile uh, device. It needs batteries. You've got, you know, oh, you know, it, basically underpinning technology to many, many um, fields that are now kind of um, coming through is battery technology. You know, we need we need energy storage. We need batteries, um, and that could be grid scale for like renewable projects. Um, could be for shipping. Could be for aircraft. Could be for electric vehicles. Could be for consumer electronics you know whatever more and more and more things have got um, i mean even human beings more and more of us have physically got batteries inside us uh, well indeed yeah you know medical devices and uh, and implements I, I talked to a guy from a another battery company um a few uh, weeks ago and, and their, their sort of field they were really kind of focusing on one of their fields they were focusing on was medical tech you know sort of batteries for um uh, medical devices so batteries are it, it's it's a huge huge market that's growing exponentially um obviously there's the the evs are a big kind of um thing you know and and the big driver of that because of the investment and because of the scale obviously you need a lot of batteries in in an ev um but it is a it's a huge 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 market that's really uh that's really starting to grow and it's one that I don't know, Europe looked like it, even though the lithium iron battery was, you know, it was an invention from um, from a guy who's working in the UK at the time. Mm. And, you know, so you say it's kind of a European innovation um, that then really has been dominated in Asia through, uh, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Korean uh, companies 
getting the scale and the, the production capacity through. So it looked like Europe was getting left behind a bit, but there's been this surge um, the last few years to uh, to catch up. And Innovat seems like one of the key uh, companies that's been been trying to do that. Uh, what, what, what's the story? You know, where, where did where did the Innovat uh, thing start, and, and what's their kind of vision for the future? I think there are numbers of plays happening um, in the um, portable energy storage market. And that's what we're talking about is how do we make available energy when we need it um, and in the right place? And batteries are a really good answer to that question right now. And chemical storage of the uh, potential is uh, has something that has gained a um, let's say heading towards a threshold of usability and availability. Yeah. Um, uh, Inabat looked very carefully at how they could um, best support the development of the industrialization and application of that trend and that that te- technological advancement. And while others are focused on volume and simply manufacturing products that exist today, um, and allowing the the research to happen elsewhere. You know, there's a number of, uh, let's call them satellite facilities that are taking chemistry developed in Korea or taking chemistry that's developed in in Japan yeah. or China um, and simply manufacturing. And that's, that's a great way of getting to volume. From a sustainability perspective, I think Europe needs to be more than just a manufacturer. Yeah. Um, I, ironically, it's the reversal of what we have been doing yeah, yeah. as it relates to... China. Yep. We've sort of said, oh, well, we'll, we'll just, we'll hold all of the IP here and we'll do all of the clever stuff here. Can yeah. you make us some vehicles? Um, and the, the irony is that now there's a, there's a reversal of that. Um, the research did come from the UK. The research did come from um, a number of Nobel winning uh, Americans as well. Um, but the exploitation was taken on, and actually the learning of the industrialization has happened in East. Yeah, yeah. And to be able to do that, we need to bring it back here. So the, a satellite facility will bring that skill. We will bring that skill back into to Europe. Within ABAT, we felt that um, not only did we need to ultimately have the roadmap to get to industrial volumes that would satisfy our customers, we also felt we should take on the challenge of actually bringing and embedding the uh, research te- uh, methodology so that we can innovate as well um, and sustainability in these chemis- these technologies comes from innovation in 20 years time we will not be talking about nmc yeah it, it will just be a, a point on a piece of history um, and uh, they'll have been recycled and turned into something else yeah. it will be so it will be a new technology now how do we make sure that we've got the ability to leverage that yeah uh, I think the only way you can do that is to actually have an intrinsic link to the chemistry development and understand how to uh, what it takes to actually improve energy density. And yeah. uh, for the last, you know, I, I've I spent uh, a lot of time with um, with Innovat and our partners. We have a partner called Wildcat Discovery Technologies, who for the last twelve years have been developing chemistry for the battery industry. Yeah, um, and. You know, when you when you get to actually explore the uh, electrochemical development and the atomic development of these batteries, you see another world. It's a bit like opening the matrix. <laughs> right. 
but it, it, it's a, it's a phenomenal achievement that that the chemists and the electrochemists have got to already by uh, in in what they're doing to get the actual energy density of the active materials to their potential right or, or close to their potential they will not never always get um right to their potential that's um physical impossibility there will be a, a level of losses associated to it but but actually to see how from a chemical perspective um you can use research to develop those uh, elements uh, to improve performance and you know we we want to not only be able to provide cells that are good today yeah. but we also want to have the roadmap to show that those cells are going to continue to develop and to actually mature and we will be able to provide surety of performance for a multitude of applications not simply for for one specific chosen use case and if right. if you don't if you don't fit into that use case forget it right. or um, I, I sort of, sort of um, try to use the analogy where we say, okay, well, we want to offer you what you want, not what you need. If if you want 330 watt-hours per kilogram as an energy density, mm. okay, you might only need 270 to just get going. Yeah. But yeah. actually what you want is 330. The market demands the chemistry development up to 330 watt hours per kilogram, a thousand watt hours per liter, yeah. a reduction in internal resistance. You know, they're all, and, it, and I, I throw these terms out like they're just like, you know, they're sweets, but actually they turn into real customer satisfaction and customer deliverables. Yeah. When you, when you can talk about 330 watt hours per kilogram, you can see a vehicle where the weight of the battery is not incumbent providing an incumbent load on the vehicle structure that prevents it from actually operating. Yeah. And its efficiency is going to therefore be able to deliver the range that you're expecting. Yeah. Now, when somebody says what hours per kilogram, you can never believe that that means you can go, you know, 350 yeah. instead of 250. Yeah. Um, or what hours per liter where you think, well, what the hell is that? Well, that means you can make a vehicle that's got 120 kilowatt hours of battery the size of a, Miev in the future instead of the size of a Range Rover in, uh, now. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's shrinking down. So each of those scientific challenges are really, um, you know, I think inherently important for the sustainability of battery development, battery manufacturing in Europe. And what I think Europe does even better, and I think the UK will also do a very good job of, is making that sustainability also include um the the green nature we call it the green agenda or whatever else you want to talk about but ultimately yeah. sustainability is the materials are they extracted um appropriately yeah are they used appropriately are they recycled appropriately um is there any uh, other uh, ethical issues associated uh, with the the process of creating energy trans uh, energy storage yeah and i think that that's where i think we will lead the way i think europe as a, a as a geopolitical or, or just a geography in reality will force the current in current manufacturers to recognize their responsibility yeah. and to force into them the the need to make sure that sustainability and um all of the the maybe the less tangible but very important factors are taken into account so you're talking about um energy efficiency in production and efficiency um 
of of the overall kind of uh, process right from a mineral extraction mining up to finished product uh yeah getting yeah. the embodied co2 down and all that that stuff so is is Innovat focusing on the automotive space or is it um you mentioned kind of batteries for lots of applications but is it would you say you're predominantly automotive batteries or is it going to be for, for lots of different markets or a different one altogether well when you consider the sort of the land the, the landscape of batteries and the markets that they're trying to be used in now if you overlay them i think if, we've done this internally where we produce a radar diagram of each of the different sectors and, and against each of the performance criteria they're very different Right. Okay. Very different. And what we recognize that we can do is we can use our skills and our research methodologies to target specifically those differences yeah. and provide not specifically tailored to the individual manufacturer, although we can do that, but tailored to the application, right. um, uh, a performance that will actually deliver the energy density that is required for a let's say a BMW mm. um, that is uh, that has that weight sensitivity, but also can be targeted in a different way to deliver the, you know, three and a half thousand cycles, seven to 10 year warranty that is required not from the that performance sector, yeah. but is but required from a commercial vehicle sector or for a, a mass market automotive application. So right. you see that as being a, um, a, a major a sister in actually us being able to provide different products to different sectors. And that's, uh, and, our, and that is a difference in our respect. Our research is simply a tool, mm. but that tool allows us to be much more um, complementary to different applications. Okay. And, and in terms of batteries, one of the, the other hot topics at the moment is uh, solid state. Um, mm. So is, is that in your, roadmap do you do you have a view on uh, on what's happening with solid state technology or so we, we, we certainly have a view and, and and it's certainly on our roadmap um to to deliver what ultimately solid state actually uh, gives the market right so i i'm more of a i look at it from a process than from a fundamental electronics or electrochemical perspective. Um, and there are lots of challenges in solid state batteries um, to be able to create the, uh, the transmissibility um, and capability of what are very, very efficient liquid electrolyte yeah. cells today. However, liquid electrolytes are inherently um, challenging in terms of their processing yeah they're a an element in itself in terms of cost yeah um and they are they're a mechanism by which issues safety issues can be propagated yeah um and solid state actually does try to in, inherently respond to that by replacing a separator and a um, an electrolyte with potentially one interface yeah. between the anode and cathode. So, it, it, from a process perspective, it makes much more se make makes sense. Yeah, um, it delivers simplification assembly, a process that actually is one of the the I say bottlenecks. One of the major elements of a cell manufacturing process is the vacuum filling process that actually yeah. occurs. You can re remove that completely, or if you can simplify it significantly, then you're going to be able to increase throughput. 
and the yeah. cost is going to be able to come down. Yep. Now, materials themselves at this point in time are still too exotic and too early stage for the price to be imagined as coming down today. Yep. Um, and we have to continue with our roadmap for uh, liquid electrolyte um, cells. And we are doing that. But at the same time, we're also monitoring and researching elements that will improve all the way through to and including solid state. But it's not just limited to that. You can talk about pre-lithiated anodes where energy density of a standard cell currently would be in, improved. That's something that um, is being done more and more. Um, there's, you know, it, it, I'm sure you will hear stories of lithium metal yeah. um, anodes um, and the processability of lithium metal is inherently difficult. Yeah, it's, it's more like butter than metal. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. the actual control of it is um, somewhat difficult. But ultimately, if you can imagine applying that and protecting it, then your energy levels at the anode are going to go up substantially. Yeah. So we we need a and we've got a a technology roadmap that gets us as far down the let's say liquid electrolyte um, roadmap as possible. Um, while in parallel working on these replacer technologies mm. that will come along. And, you know, you could probably list 10, 12 other replacer technologies that if they are fully successful and fully industrializable, yeah. would be a, a replacer for mm. um, what would be called an NMC roadmap today. Because there's, there's sort of in, interesting developments at like a chemistry level, but then you've got the process-orientated stuff Solid state is probably a combination of process and chemistry. But there's yeah. some pure process uh, things like the move from wet slurries to dry anode cathode production. Um, so there's lots of stuff going on at the moment. It must be, you know, it must be quite hard, actually, if you've... Because you're not talking about small investments either in these plants. You know, it's um, huge, like multi-billion investments in the in these big plants. So keeping abreast of all of that and making sure that you don't end up putting a foot wrong um, must be quite a challenge. I mean, the, the fear of redundancy, obviously, is the um, um, quite a, um, an, uh, a focus for making good decisions. Yeah. Um, because we don't want to invest in chemistry or m mechanisms or ma machinery that actually is going to uh, ultimately... Um, prevent us from being able to exploit new technologies as they come along. Yeah. Um, there will always be those technologies that do come along where you need to have a shift of certain elements of the manufacturing process. Yeah. You know, that's, that, that's expected. And uh, I think we, we have a view of the maturity and the longevity of our current processes and, and how they may develop um, to actually implement new technologies. Um, I think it's the same with all manufacturers, to be honest. They, they're always looking at, well, what we, what we make today and can we make it tomorrow? And if somebody come along to say, okay, well, you, you were making it like that before, but now we can do it completely differently, like yeah. Tesla. You know? yeah. I mean, Tesla are, 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 are steaming forward with um, developments uh, not only at a processability level, with uh, dry, uh, dry active materials, yeah. a dry application, which um, will, will simplify substantially um, once they have resolved the processing conditions. You know, slurries are slurries because they're easy to make yeah. and apply 
dry powder is not as easy to apply and you need to solve the problems of that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, subsequent to them doing it, they're going to see a processability improvement. Yeah. Um, the design of their cells is also something that they've been putting a huge amount of effort in. So the, so the, the, the tablet design or cell yeah. cell design that they've they've come up with, when you see inside it, you can see where they've come, where they've realized that there would, there is a, a substantive improvement that they can make mm. in terms of cost if they change the way that they fundamentally do the internals of a cylindrical cell. Yeah. And those will, th those will continue to occur. I'm sure. Um, we are looking at a number of process improvements that we think are secure, but they have to be industrializable solutions. Yeah. You know, you, there's no point if you could go down the street and see, Oh, I've got this brilliant idea. I've got this one cell. It does a brilliant job of doing X or Y. And then you say, okay, well, where's the machine that's going to actually be able to translate that into yeah. 6 million cells, <laughs> yeah. 20 million cells. And then you, then you start asking, you know, gigafactories are talking about more than that. You know, yeah. gigafactory volumes are greater than those numbers I've just said. I guess it's an advantage Tesla has and, and, and some others that they're kind of learning by doing. Um, and I know one of the things I think in particularly the automotive space that's sometimes a problem is at the big the big OEMs kind of want the perfect solution before they even start. I think, you know, where te Tesla has started and is kind of learning a lot as it's as it's going, so then making those improvements. And you, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's fascinating actually, because you've, you've obviously vastly experienced in terms of using batteries. And I do wonder, that's a cheeky question for you perhaps, but you know, how different are the batteries that you're working with now compared to ones that you were dealing with back in, um, you know, 2006, seven, eight at, um, at Smith's? Is there a, is there a, do you wish you had this stuff back then or is there really not much oh, of a difference? Uh, absolutely. No, there is, there is a, there's been a huge amount of development that has occurred. Hmm. Um, and there's a huge amount of availability that wasn't available at the time, right, yeah. um, which would have made a difference. I have to say we, we, we were, Smith Smith had to look on the open market for batteries and availability of batteries. And as a commodity, mm. lithium-ion batteries, whether they be iron phosphate or NMC or whatever else, they there was an over-demand. There was too many people looking at too few batteries as their yeah. marketplace. So we find it very difficult to actually do absolute product development targeting the customer options, the customer requirements, when really you were constrained and stymied by the actual cell that you could get a hold of at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now that's not that that still exists to a certain extent, but it's getting better. Um, and in parallel to that, the the nature of the energy density and the price that is available for those has substantially yeah. one gone up and one come down. Uh, so it, it, the, there is a better um, capability within the supply chain mm. um, and those chemistries didn't exist. You know, I say NMC and NMC existed <laughs> when we were building batteries at Smith, but NMC is a ratio of one, one, one that's yeah. that, that existed, you know, and, and, and that's, that's an awful lot of cobalt yeah, yeah, and yeah. an awful lot of nickel and an awful lot of manganese. We were using some together. pretty uh, racy 
They're basically military-grade um, cells, if I remember, at the time. The other thing that used to be really annoying, and I don't know if, if you sort of remember this, but there was no standards. So every time, even working with the same blooming cell manufacturer, they'd come up with something new. So, oh, we've got this new cell. You know, it's this better spec. It's going to solve these issues that we had with the old cell. And every time they changed the size of the damn thing. So you were kind of... You'd spend all this time and money engineering a battery pack around a certain pouch format, and then they'd come out with some very small incremental improvement, <clears throat> but they'd change the size of the pouch by like three millimeters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Start again. <laughs> Whereas now the standards, just having a standard cylindrical think, yeah. standard pouches, it's big. Uh... I think cylindrical standardization is going to continue to happen, and, and it has for, for, for a number of years. 18650 being a common format, 2170s. Um, be, has been the norm for uh, ever since Tesla started using it in, in essence and in volume. Yeah. Um, they obviously have gone and said, no, we're going to make a different cell again. Yeah. So their, cell, their new cell is not a standard cell. Yeah. Uh, standardization is something that the industry, I think, will be interested to actually achieve once other things have been optimized to the point where they make sense. And it, I find it difficult to say that we can definitely have a standard format of cell when we haven't got the energy density that we need yeah. to provide all of the applications that we need. Once we have that, then potentially that can be optimized to be more standardized into the form factor. But the, the form factor plays a significant part of the uh, capability of the chemistry. Yeah. Um, and as the chemistry is developing, so it sometimes be, is that um it's should it, it would be constrained if you just said we're always going to make 18650 cells yeah um and when you look at the challenge of putting batteries together putting nine and a half thousand cells together into a pack <laughs> right that that sounds like uh, something that is going to give you a headache once in a while yeah, it's not Whereas, trivial. yeah with, uh, it's, 18, it's not thousand precision laser welds and you know, yes and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a laser welding head that's got to be monitored continuously and can't miss one cannot miss one yeah so the format the form factor does suggest that there is a potential to actually simplify assembly. Yeah. If you look at the BYD cell, uh, the blade cell is um, maybe the ultimate for a specific configuration. Yep. You know, it's, yep. it's a meter long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's a meter long because it's LFP, by the way. It can't be a meter long if it was NMC. No, yeah. It's a meter long because it's LFP and it's got terminals down the outside edge of the cells. Um, and, and it's very simple to put together mm. they've integrated the cooling and the casing into the way that the batteries are put together so that structural stiffness is achieved within the battery pack yeah um, and therefore you're not reliant on protection as much as you would have been if it was in a you know you create this battery but you never want anybody to touch it because yeah. it's so femur well now the battery is actually more rigidly um, constructed it's bonded together it has that inherent stability that um, could um, and and that's all down to form factor flexibility but I, I I know from bitter experience you know internal uh, installation efficiency is a major driver to all of the vehicle manufacturers and the cell providers don't tend to help there yeah I and mean, it at a, at a pack level, 
there's always been this trade-off with prismatic pouch and cylindrical you know what's the best the that, the blade cell seems like it's all i i would almost say it's kind of like a hybrid prismatic uh, pouch cell you know it's kind of yeah, trying to get yeah. the best of both worlds of those but the uh, the argument for cylindricals is there from a if you talk to a, a cell manufacturing or a manufacturing person cylindricals is like the best way to do it because it's you know you can zip through it you don't have to stop your yeah. process uh, but then from a pack point of view um you know it's it's not 18,000 welds and all the rest of it so bigger format cells so there is does this seem to this convergence of everyone's got the same problems basically so tesla have gone to bigger cells in the 2170s and then bigger again with their new cells um and it's for the it's for the same reasons for that for that reason why people like the pouch but then the the main issue then with pouch cells is handling it you know and sort of the lack of mechanical uh, integrity to it and, and dealing with that and actually thermal propagation between cells and yeah, so it's there's kind of all these trade-offs and compromises you have to make and what's the perfect you know the perfect packaging format for the product cell production machinery is probably not the perfect for the um for the pack designer it's probably not the perfect for the you know so it's so a lot of a lot of moving parts to keep control of there yeah but i think if we can and one of our offerings to the market is we we can offer flexibility to discuss what is the best format it may be that the best form is still 2170 right but but you've never been offered as a vehicle designer the ability to ask the question yeah yeah you know can we do something really cool about the battery can we make it run down the pillars can we put it into the roof lining idea I mean, silly <laughs> ideas but yeah. you know no you can't because you can't because the cells are a form factor and that's it and that's all Right. So if you've got the ability to imagine making a one meter wide battery that is that literally is a box mm. with cells running laterally across the vehicle all the way down it, then the designer is going to think, oh, can I use that to actually differentiate my product? Yeah. Can I can I actually sell more of my vehicles because I've learned something that other people haven't? Yeah. And tailoring does potentially offer that, where okay. um, if you tailor the chemistry or tailor the form factor, it then offers BMW to think about what's important to BMW, yeah. which is not the same as what's important to Hyundai or yeah. to Ford. And But for each of those, they will have a different answer. They will say, this is more important than this. I, uh, I As a sports car manufacturer, I need to be sitting with my backside on the road. Yeah. Okay, so that means... The form factor needs to be tuned accordingly to allow that to happen. Whereas if you don't, okay, just let the vehicle grow by a hundred millimeters and stick the battery underneath the entirety of the floor. Yeah. And you've got a skateboard and it's really efficient and you can make gazillions of them and lots of different form factors on top of it. Vehicle form factors. And and effectively, is this the so Inabat's kind of USP? It's it's business model. Is that it's all around that flexibility and you know, the ability to offer more custom solution than, than one of the the other guys can? Well, we certainly think that there will be customers that need that flexibility. Yeah. Um, and But even in a standard cell, that we obviously are looking at volumizing chemistry development that is yeah. carried out internally within our, our team um, because we see those movements as well being uh, fundamentally important. So it's a mixture of okay. mixture of both. Um, we have to remain cutting edge. And at the same time, because of our um, our flexible uh, approach, 
we could also potentially give flexibility in form factor as well. So where, where is Inabat now on the journey then? Are you, uh, what's the plan and how far are you through uh, delivering on that? What's the current status? Yeah, um, it's been a, it's been a cram-packed 2020 for lots of reasons, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so we um, we have a facility, we've got our environmental impact assessment completed, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about the chemicals and the processes that we're talking about, that's a reasonably substantive process of going through. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've, uh, we've been investing in that. Uh, we're already... Um, in manufacture of our um, initial cell, right? Um, uh, to uh, to actually demonstrate the chemistry development, let's say. Okay. Prior, prior to the pilot line being fully installed, the timeline is that we will, by the end of next year, have a fully installed research center and pilot line manufacturing center within the location, which is about forty minutes from Bratislava. Okay. Right. And and then is that. Um... What what are the kind of giga plant? Everyone likes a giga plant these days. What's the what's the giga giganess of your giga giga plant? <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody likes. Unfortunately, giga will be um, a, a form a, a word that disappears. I'm sure terror will take over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so yeah, our industrial volume plans um, follow in from the the nature of our learning that we're carrying out um, from yeah. the end of next year. So. Um, our pilot line actually is a fully demonstrating our processes that will go into Gigafactory. So it's it's not just a manual manufacturing process. It's an automated manufacturing process that we're putting into the, the pilot line. Okay. Um, and ultimately, 2024 um, is our um, plan for the start of commissioning of our, um, our Gigafactory, which could be um, 10, it very much depends on customer um, focus as to exactly how large it needs to be in its initial installation, but um, you know, 10, 20 gigawatt hours, uh, Eastern Slovakia um, uh, is at least one of the locations that um, has some substantial benefits right. um, in both the infrastructure, natural resources and a capable workforce. So we're, we're certainly um, uh, interested in exploring how that can be uh, delivered. Yep. Um, that, that process, however, and that, that time takes around about 12 months to actually conclude yeah. in terms of a detailed design phase. Yeah. Uh, and um, with most pilot lines, it takes around about 18 months to install. Yeah, okay. Sorry, gigafactories, it takes about 18 months to install. Right. Okay, so so you're kind of well, you're well on the way. Um, and and is there are you starting to get customer traction now for sort of people signing up for capacity in the future and, and what have you? I think the, the um, you you mentioned the reticence of the industry to actually um, to to commit until everything is done. Um, that's something that I think the industry needs to recognise that if we're going to increase volume substantially, they need to get on board. Um, and because of that, that was one of the first things that we did was to to go out to to customers, customers that could be securing gigafactory volumes um, for us uh, from us in the future, um, and to get their impression of what we we're proposing to do. Um, received an awful lot of feedback very early on. It's allowed us to actually um, 
tailor what we've proposed and how we're actually approaching it yeah. um, to to those um, high volume off takers. And you know, as you say, mobility um, is a very broad sector. Mainstream automotive mobility is probably taking, you know, planned 70% of all capacity in gigafactories going forward. Right. Uh, so we have that as part of our story, uh, part of our narrative. But at the same time, we also have uh, a narrative where we can be supporting other um, sectors, both through manufacturing cells at Gigafactory, but also potentially also selling, uh, selling production uh, cells out of the pilot line where we'll have um, around 250 megawatt hours of capacity uh, when we start production there. Wow. So I have that flexibility and also the mass scaling uh, option as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a significant pilot line um, in itself. Yeah. 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 That, so, so what for you then? What you know, moving from being um, very much on the vehicle side of things, what has it been a challenge to go to um, battery and, and battery cell development and manufacturing? What what have been the challenges for you there? I think with anything new, there is a challenge, but I think we um, I, I, the reason I thought that I was able to add something to it is I had context. Yeah. So I already got the pain from the other end of the story, um, and <laughs> yeah. and had been involved in the um, the chemistry roadmaps and chemistry stories, uh, even as a customer yeah. for some time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the challenges do exist where I, I need to to get from the component level to the atomic level, mm. um, and learn exactly what how to make good decisions when you're working on optimizing that at that level. Um, for a product ultimately won't be um, experienced until yeah. uh, you see it at a pack level. Yeah. Um, but the team that we've got around us here is, is, is really well informed, both uh, from research chemists all the way through to some of the leading uh, applications engineers in the, in the automotive industry. Um, far more experience than I have, which is good. Yeah. Um, because uh, um, we, they, they have a view of the BMW and the Porsche um, roadmaps to success as well. Yeah. Um, as well as the other new entrants to the market as well. So it's yeah. it, it's it's a great team that it creates some really interesting and uh, uh, quite accelerated development. I have to say we've we've moved a long way very quickly. Oh, fantastic! And uh, I just kind of um, I just noticed the time actually. Um, we've kind of run over. So um, finally, what's your what are you most excited about um, for the future? You know, what's what's kind of happening for you and for Innovat that's really got you excited for the next uh, the next few years? Yeah, I think Innovat's future is uh, looking extremely uh, positive, and uh, the getting the first customer to experience the product will be a, a, a something that will be really um, a great thing to experience. Um, we've already seen some cells manufactured. That was a really good positive for the team who. Have not really understood what a um, what it's like to bring something to fruition before, uh, yeah. um, and from nothing to something is uh, is uh, an experience in itself. So yeah. I'm I, I'm most excited to see the team grow and to to realise their potential um, in terms of the the really what can be achieved when you put your mind to it as a group. Uh, so that's that's really enthusiastic. I'm I'm interested in a global level or at a, a regional level at least to see uh, how electrification can fundamentally change people's perception of um, 
transportation and applications of product and how the automotive industry and the other transport industries evolved to to take a lead again in actually where those chemistries and those those opportunities exist yeah whether it be in the end is hydrogen going to take over from certain applications yeah um is there a is battery a stepping point when it comes to large-scale commercial vehicles there are questions that are still to be answered but it's a really exciting time when this level of change is imagined and accepted as being a good thing yeah yeah oh brilliant well thank you so much for um for, for, for taking the time out Doug to talk really really good to catch up with you uh fascinating to um to learn more about what you're doing in about and um and also get the uh the, the benefit of your experience for the the listeners to the podcast so thank you thanks for taking the time out not a problem and hopefully we'll be able to um i'll be able to get back to the northeast <laughs> at some point in the near future yeah, right. i'll be able to vi- visit my mother who was in lockdown and uh and, and isolating but uh um yeah it'd be great to see the northeast and the sea again i haven't seen the sea in in, in eight in eight months nine months oh wow which for a blythe boy is pretty hard and that's like to... yeah you don't yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i keep on keep on watching videos on the tv on youtube just to see it <laughs> <laughs> oh fantastic great well um yeah so that's all we've got time for today Thank you very much uh, to everyone for taking the time out to listen to the show. I, uh, I hope you've got something from this. Uh, don't forget, if you're doing something uh, really interesting and exciting in the world of EV or AV, just like Doug, then uh, you could be a guest on the show too. We've got some really exciting episodes lined up. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. I, uh, I checked out the statistics the other day and uh, it was quite surprising actually. We've got a lot of subscribers, but it's something like 10 to 1, the ratio between people who are subscribed and people who are actually listening. So uh, please do subscribe. It really helps the show get in front of more people, uh, helps all the algorithms and stuff, and it uh, puts it in front of the right uh, the right people when they're looking for good information on electrification and autonomy. So um, that's all we've got time for today. I really look forward to speaking to you again soon.